A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied. So he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill. For the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on a dawn bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but long for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill. For the caged bird sings of freedom. Maya Angelou's poem, Caged Bird. Produced and recited by Jonathan Ramcharan of Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. What's up, y'all? It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty. On this magnificent August 27th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Welcome and bienvenue to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. Yo, it's happening. Beautiful sunny day. Great opportunity to podcast with y'all. Thank you very much. So if you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, this is a show where I bitch whine, squawk, bellyache, and kibitz whine about myself in order to relate to y'all self, y'all the dear listener, y'all the dear viewer. Shared experiences, kindred souls, BFFs forever. <laughs> and um, if you are new to the show, I am an actor extraordinaire. 19 years of service, Diploma in Theater Arts. That's been to the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and damn proud of it. You know, it's hot. Ah, it's hot. Ah, when you're under them lights, boy. When you be under them lights on a sunny day, boy, it gets hot. Sweating. Spitzing. You know? I've been thinking recently, you know... 2020, you know, pandemic, civil um, discourse, discussion, racial protests, you know, societal outlooks. And in relation to that, as a actor in 2020, I'm also blessed and graced to be a black actor. 
there was a time as an actor um, when there was a distinguishment. You know, you had to know your place in a sense, you know. Coming up as a young actor, freshly released from theater arts when I graduated college, I read a book, The Measure of a Man, a spiritual biography by Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier, famed actor, black actor. And it was such an eye-opener because that was like 2006 when I read that book. And, you know, Sidney, a long, illustrious career, you know, um, guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> what was it Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, I believe? Guess who's coming to dinner? He plays like some black doctor <laughs> getting in bed with, um, you know, a white couple's daughter in the height of, you know, I guess you can call it a civil rights movement, you know, or, you know, in that time frame. Guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> um, that was a real shocker because in the book, he, you know, I read this book a while ago, so I may be wrong on this, but it feels kind of right. I feel like I remember this in my memory. He mentioned that there was a lot of racism, straight up dis, uh what is it, uh, prejudice against him from some of his co-stars like Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn. Apparently, everything was all smiley, smiley and cheesy, cheesy when, you know, the Hollywood press would poke their nose into the production. But behind the scenes... His castmates, his castmates wouldn't talk to him. I don't know if it was just a time when people were just uh, learning to grapple with um, integration. I don't know if it was the climate of the times. I don't know if it was just a professional courtesy of sometimes as a performer, you don't want to get so close with your... Um, Sometimes you don't want to be so close with your castmates. You want to keep it professional. And especially as, you know, the characters playing parents of a daughter dating a young black man, they might have wanted to keep that realism where it's like they're a little bit xenophobic. They're a little, um, you know, unaware of what it's like to be in a black presence a black family so maybe you know his castmates on that film were trying to stick to that who knows but in that book he spoke about that the prejudices the uh some of the racism he felt and dealt with through his career through his childhood he talked about being followed home by policemen and mocked and, you know, intimidated, bullied. And it was just kind of like an everyday thing as a black person growing up back in them days. I guess like must have been like late 30s, 40s, 40s, I guess, 40s, 50s growing up. And, you know, throughout his career, he did some amazing films, you know. Guess who's coming to dinner to serve with love, you know. In the heat of the night. You know, in the heat of the night. Soundtrack done by Ray Charles, coincidentally. In the heat of the night. That fucking blind bat, you know. Ray, shout out to Jamie Foxx. Amazing biopic, you know. But Ray Charles did the uh, soundtrack to that film. And uh, one classic piece of dialogue in film history, but I guess definitely in, you guess you can call it black film, black film history, or just film history. Um, they call me Mr. Tibbs. 
Sidney Poitier's character, he plays a detective assigned to a, uh, a rape case, a rape investigation in the Deep South. And um, he's interrogating a plantation owner on his property as a black detective <laughs> in like the 1960s. So he's on this plantation and he's interrogating this plantation owner. And um, the plantation o- owner gets a whiff of like, how dare you be interrogating me, boy? You know who you talking to, boy? So, you know, Sidney Poitier is asking him his questions. The plantation owner walks up to Sidney, right? And he's just like, Slaps Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier turns around and in a blink of an eye, slaps him back. They call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> there was a time in which I could have had you shot, boy. <laughs> you know, that's a famous line. You know, they call me Mr. Tibbs. That was actually in a different scene, I think. But still, you know, classic film. In the heat of the night. And, uh, you know, with that rich history and the so many others that came before as black performers, you know, pickaninnies. <laughs> you know, I guess that's the theater term back in the day for like a young black child who would, you know, tap dance, jive and dance, at, you know, vaudeville, chitlin circuit, pickaninnies. All the performers that came before and the struggles and the triumphs that they overcame to bring us to this present day where it's such a great time as a black actor, which was once deemed such a, you know, almost like a a stinging criticism in a sense. You're not an actor. You're a black actor. Right. Well, come come forward now to 2020 with all the generations of performers that strode them boards, you know, walked through the back entrance to the gig, you know, mocked, you know, treated with indecency, you know, cast members, fellow um, colleagues not wanting to rehearse with you or speak to you. Um as soon as your scene is done, you know, come forward here, 2020. What a blessing. What a great time to be a black actor, a actor of color. And even more to that, it's like, what a time to just celebrate our culture and its effect on other cultures and its ability to be cross-racial, you know, the appreciation that we find from other communities and how, how we can work together and just make great pieces of entertainment. You know, like, for example, Denzel. <laughs> That's my dog, man. That's my man, Denzel, you know. You see this newspaper? It's 99% bullshit. But it entertains me. That's why I read it. But you won't let me read my newspaper. So you entertain me with your bullshit. You got a dick, don't you? Your dick lines up like this, right? Each side, there's pockets. Reach in them pockets. Pay the bill. Fuck, man. I don't know if I could be a cop. I'll go back to the valley and punch parking tickets. I can't do this shit no more. I can't. I didn't know being a police officer was like that. You sound just like me when I was your age, Jake. You sound just like me when I you I was your age, Jake. Now you gotta understand, do you wanna be a sheep or do you wanna be a wolf? <laughs> Why you bitch made punk ass disrespectful niggas? Y'all niggas be playing basketball in Pelkin Bay But I'm done with you. Jailhouse nigga You think you could do this to me? King Kong ain't got shit on me. Oh, you motherfucker. You shot me in the ass, Jake. 
You remind me of myself when I was your age, Jake. You were just like me when I was your age, Jake. You were just like me when I was your age, Jake. <laughs> oh, I love that black man. I love me, myself. You know, Denzel, man, Mr. Washington. Come forward, come forward to this day and age, and he's had a long, illustrious career as well, but come forward to this day and age. That's the power of the black actor. We're cross, we're cross racial. You know, that's the strength and the beauty of how far we have come. And what a better time, you know? All the, all the heartaches that the people before have went through. Now we have this day and age where it's like Denzel Washington. Anybody, any actor, any director, black, white, Asian, you know, Hispanic, you know, whatever, any filmmaker would love to work with Denzel Washington. Case in point, I was watching The Equalizer last night. Great film. Uh, Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. You remember, you remind me of just, you were just like myself when I was your age, Jake. You were, you were just like me when I was your age, Jake. You were just like me when I was your age, Jake. <laughs> you want to be a sheep or do you want to be a wolf? Howl, nigga. Oh, let me hear you howl, dog. You got to howl, dog. Oh, damn, Jake, I didn't know you liked to get wet. PCP, angel dust. You remind me of myself when I was your age, Jake. You were just like me, Jake. But like Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day, um, Equalizer. Equalizer 2. I was watching the Equalizer 2 last night. And that's the strength of the black actor, the black filmmaker in this day and age. We're cross-racial and we're in a time where it's like it's a blessing to tell our stories and have our strength and work with others to make great stories. The Equalizer 2. There was a character, there was a scene in there in, in which Denzel Washington, um, he confronts a young businessman uh, and they have a skirmish, a fight. And it's a great scene. And the young actor, uh, his name is Rory Benjamin Smith. Rory Benjamin Smith. Cute kid, clean cut, you know, Rory Benjamin Smith. This young white kid, clean cut, you know, cute kid, clean cut, you know, and you could tell, you could tell, like, he really rocked the scene, like, Rory, he really stepped up, and, you know, he, he held his own with Denzel, and it was a great scene, and I was, like, watching him, I'm like, wow, you could tell in his performance how, perfor how, how prepared he was for it, how he served the production, and I could tell by watching him, like, yeah, like, how exciting would it be to be like, holy shit, I'm in a scene with Denzel Washington, directed by Antoine Fuqua? You could totally tell, because, you know, he nailed his scene, and he added to the film, and that's the strength of, you know, that's the strength, and that's how far we've come as black actors, where it's like, we're sought after. And we can work with others and there's, there's, the sky's the limit, you know? And we have our place and we work with others and it's just about making great work. And like, I started thinking about all the people that have inspired me, you know, the Sidney Poitiers, the Denzel Washingtons, and it's like, the list goes on and on. Will Smith. Don Cheadle, Ving Rhames, um, Samuel L. Jackson. Mmm, <laughs> that is a tasty burger. Why in no country I ever heard of? You speak English and what? English, motherfucker, do you speak it? Describe what my Silas Wallace looks like. Does he look like a bitch? <laughs> Does he look like a bitch? I don't sound as black as I used to. <laughs> See how far I've come? I do Shakespeare now. <laughs> I won't be relegated to your hip-hop buffoonery. I do Shakespeare in the park. I am a black thespian. <laughs> I, 
I take suffrage to the notion that I'm a black actor. I am a black thespian. <laughs> you know? Samuel L. Jackson. You know? Um, the list goes on and on. Terrence Howard. Um, Jeffrey Wright. Uh, and then the directors. Clement Virgo. Canada. Clement Virgo. You know, um... The Book of Negroes, you know, director, Clement Virgo, uh, Tyler Perry, <laughs> Big Mama's House, or, or Medea, <laughs> uh, Tyler Perry, uh, Steve McQueen, Kenya Barris, Spike Lee, come on. I got to watch his new film, The Five Bloods, The Five Bloods, I'm going to watch that tonight on Netflix, Spike Lee, F. Gary Gray, Ryan Coogler. Um, the list goes on and on. And then the women, you know? Holla at a queen, you know? Taraji P. Henson. Whoopi Goldberg. I remember listening to a Whoopi Goldberg album. She started as like a comic. I remember listening to a Whoopi Goldberg character, uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, album back in like, in college. She's doing like a one-woman play and... She's switching between all these characters and the command in her voice. You know, it's like we sleep on some of these people sometimes, you know, but Whoopi Goldberg, Academy Award winner, comedian, talk show presenter, you know, like player in the industry. Whoopi Goldberg, um, Halle Berry, Halle Berry, hallelujah, holla back, I'll be friends with you, Halle Berry. Uh, Kerry Washington, Regina King, Alan, Angela Bassett, Vivica A. Fox, you know, Octavia Spencer. Did you see her? Oh, my God. Her. She plays like a disgruntled, ex-picked-on, weirdo, middle-aged woman who, like, you know, gets into some mischief with some teenagers. Her. I think that's on Netflix, you know, Octavia Spencer, brilliant. Um, the Help, she was in The Help. Viola Davis as well, you know, you know. And of course, you know, Halle Berry, she, she amongst others, many others, uh, was, you know, as, as time progressed, was kind of like a spearhead, you know, all of a sudden, here's Halle Berry, Academy Award winning actress. I believe she was the first one, right? Um, best actress, Academy Award winner, Halle Berry. So it's like we have this legacy of, of amazing performers and cars horns blowing and amazing performers. And it's like, you know, what a better time to be a black actor. And, you know, as a black actor, thespian such as myself, We've come so far where now we're just working with people and we're just doing great work and it's about connectivity and it's about the work. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Janathan Ramcharan, actor extraordinaire. I am also a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. 11 plus years of service. Yeah, I've been bitch whining, squawking, cabelly aching, and kibitzing on stage for 11 plus years now. <clears throat> and, you know, reflecting on what's going on as a black person living in 2020, it's like, again, I gotta give a shout out to the greats, you know? The Richard Pryors, the Eddie Murphys, the, um, you know, Chris Rocks, Dave Chappelle's, Kevin Hart, you know? These people that, you know, have contributed so much to the world of comedy and, you know, entertain audiences and represent our culture, man. The greats, the goats, you know? Because I was thinking about it, you know what I mean? Like, Richard Pryor, <laughs> you want to know how influential Richard Pryor is, how... You know, he, he's considered a part of the holy trinity of comedy, right? 
like I guess a shift in what we know as modern comedy in terms of more of a introspective long form creation of bits, characters, a personality angle, a personal approach to joke telling. Traditional jokes were kind of in the vaudeville form up until a certain point, right? Up until like, I guess you can call it some of these spearheads, like the Richard Pryors, the Lenny Bruce's, well, these actual people, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, the Holy Trinity. Up until that point, a lot of comedy, a lot of comedy was very like vaudeville style. Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? <laughs> All good and good, right? But these three are known for really putting their stamp on the industry, giving a personal touch and a satirical touch to the art of comedy. Personal, personalized jokes, introspection, satire, characters, you know? So these are influential performers. And Richard Pryor, I remember, I recall <clears throat> how influential this guy was. I, I always had heard of him. Um, I've grown to love him as a, for his work. Um, I think I, oh, I had so many great ones. Um, I think my favorite of his is that Live and Smokin' or Up and Smokin', where he's like, I think, I think he's performing at the comedy store in LA and he's just standing on stage and there's like a menu in the background. <laughs> he's up there just bombing. <laughs> he seems like he's bombing, but like he's really in command of a small room, right? Small room, late night or whatever. No one really there, but he's, he's on his point and he's just kind of staring there, standing there telling his jokes, smoking. <laughs> you can catch a habit from dick sucking. <laughs> okay, Richard. But anyway, like... Uh, what does he do? Um, <laughs> he's so influential where it's like, I remember one night I was in my drunken self-pitying phase. You know, I've been doing comedy for under a year. I was kind of banging around trying to get my foot in the acting door. I, I'd been doing stand-up comedy for like a year. Back in my drinking days, my smoking days, my tumultuous artist days. Oh, I'm an artist. I was having one of them weird nights where, you know, I was kind of drunken out of it and lamenting. And I, I made some sort of promise to myself. I'm always going to do comedy. I'm going to tell the truth. And I'm going to be who I am. And I'm going to do what I do. Let me fucking, let me commemorate. Let me memorialize this evening. I'm going to burn myself. <laughs> so I took a lighter. I took a lighter and I burnt myself. I got like a fucking quarter sized, like it's a, the size of a quarter. I'm just burning myself with a lighter. To this day, I still have the mark. It's like a quarter sized burn mark I have on, I have on my right thigh. I was drunk, smoking cigarettes, high as fuck. I don't know. It was just some weird self-loathing really pathetic moment in my life but i wanted to i wanted to memorialize it as a testament to my creativity as an artist actor comedian right i was like 19 or 20 at the time flash forward like literally like two months later i'm watching richard pryor i think like live on the sunset strip or one of his specials i'm watching richard pryor he's talking about fucking free basin smoking crack <laughs> He blows himself up smoking crack, you know, fucking crazy. And then he's like, how come, you know, then the joke was, the joke was, that's Richard Pryor running down the street. You know, he had like a match. That's Richard Pryor running down the street. This guy had like third degree burns all over his body. I'm like, I'm just like watching this. I'm like. Is there like no realm of comedy that he hasn't influenced? Really? <laughs> Burning yourself alive? Ah, that's an old Richard Pryor bit. <laughs> you fucking hack, would you burn yourself? <laughs> Three third degree burns? Ah, you fucking hack. That's a Richard Pryor bit. <laughs> you know, what am I gonna start smoking crack? You know, like 
ridiculous, right? So it's like the influential nature of like Richard Pryor, you know, Paul Mooney. <laughs> um, you know, and then like into the modern times, like Eddie Murphy. Like here's how deep Eddie Murphy's like in what I do. It's like a lot of a lot of comics, especially of my generation, you know, and just, you know, within the last 30 years, within the last, yeah, like 30, 40 years, the influential reach of Eddie Murphy. He's so in the recesses of what I do. He's so ingrained in what I do. It would be like as if you were a musician. Okay, welcome to your first day of music theory. We're going to start off with the rudiments of music. Let's start with a beat. 4-4 four, four time. One, two, three, four. That's a beat. Okay. Introduction to musical theory. That's how, that's how deep Eddie Murphy is in what I do. I remember growing up watching, like, you know, coming to America, trading places, um, you know, the clumps. <laughs> Sherman, Sherman, Sherman. <laughs> I got a date. Friday night at 8, and I will not be late. <laughs> That's my baby. <laughs> Eddie, he's just so in my fucking heart as a performer, as a beat. Everything is like, oh yeah, like, of course. Why not do characters? Why not be, you know, culturally aware? Why not have that playfulness? Because, like, that's that's one of the great things about Eddie. Eddie Murphy is like, when it comes to like some of those, some of the greats, like I was always influenced by a lot of different people, but like you know, let's look at like for example, going back to that Holy Trinity: Richard Pryor, Carlin, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. Well, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin, they were they were very much of a satirical nature, you know. I guess George Carlin was known for a little bit of a goofy period. I think like the weatherman, the weather guy. He was known for like a little bit of a goofy period, but then he really made his place with satire and wordplay as a wordsmith, right? So you got like George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, and into modern times, somebody that really influenced me and kind of derivative of that is like the Bill Hicks and the Doug Stanhopes. It's that lineage of satire, biting cynical satire right and that is so valuable as a comedian and eddie very much had that finger of pulse his finger on the pulse of you know satire social commentary he had that intelligence he had that spark but he also had sort of a playfulness a goofiness a playfulness a childlike quality to like, yeah, the characters like the clumps, you know? That's my baby. Sherman, Sherman, Sherman. <laughs> you know, the clumps and, um, you know. Hey, Shrek. Donkey. Shrek, what's going on with Shrek? What's going on with Shrek? You know? He had that playfulness that a lot of comedians kind of... Sh a lot of comedians in this day and age, like a modern... A modern style in comedy what i noticed which is kind of a modern style kind of a trendy style is like a like a biting cynicism a sarcastic sardonic impenetrable force i'm in command here i'm smart i'm funny i'm satirical i'm cutting i'm biting i'm cynical i'm going to tell you what it is i'm the comedian and there's not much room for play and that's what i mean but eddie's that Eddie's that beat. Eddie's that beat, man. Like, the playfulness and just that grounded form of character bits, you know, impersonations, you know. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the influence Eddie Murphy has had on me and 
a generation of performers, a generation of audience members, you know? And, you know, on from there, Dave Chappelle, <laughs> greatest of all time, GOAT. Hey, gang, it's Dave. And I said, kick her in the pussy. <laughs> you know, Dave Chappelle, oh, man, what a... What an inspiration, man. I never... I'm a fan for life, you know? And, you know, then you got, like, the Chris Rocks, um, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, like... What a great comedian. What a great businessman. What an inspiration. He was, like, the first comedian, like... Aside from, like, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan was always very... Um, you know, you know, he's funny, he's got his podcast, and he's very physical, you know? I take a lot of inspiration from that. It's like, okay, he's healthy, and he's, you know, a lot of comedians, unfortunately, were not so healthy. <laughs> I had my period of time where I was drinking, smoking every day, really destroying myself. When I finally got sober, I was scared of, like, you know, does that mean I'm no longer funny? All those sort of insecurities. And, you know, even though Joe Rogan's high as fuck <laughs> around the clock, God bless him, you know, uh, he's a very health conscious, successful, hilarious comedian, always took inspiration from that. And then I saw Kevin Hart uh, in a lot of Rogan podcasts. And again, that really inspired me like, wow, like to be that successful and that just positive. Spiritually, mentally, and physically. Great inspiration from that. And like that's the lineage of... And all the countless others, man. Fucking Cat Williams. <laughs> I love that motherfucker. It's raining, it's sleeting, it's pouring. A pimp don't know what to wear. What's going on, Atlanta? Oh, you motherfuckers. You know, I, I got to the airport. It's raining, it's sleeting, it's pouring. A pimp don't know what to wear. Gotta love your life, motherfucker. You gotta love them life, you know? They gotta cut them lights off. Motherfucker, them lights, yo. I'm gonna smoke my weed. <laughs> oh, fucking Cat. Cat Williams, you know? Fucking Cat Williams. Er, Bernie Mac, you know? D.L. Hughley. Aries Spears, you know? Just what a great lineage of you know, comedians that have added to comedy, to the enjoyment of audiences, and to black culture, you know, and what a value. And um, I'm just glad to be on the bottom, you know, scrounging the bottom for the crumbs, man. I'm, I'm happy. And, you know, I do my thing, and, you know, I just go on in that spirit. In that lineage. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Janitha Ramcharan, stand-up comedian extraordinaire. And that's kind of what's going on with me as a performer 2020. Yeah. It's hot. I'm going to get a sip of water, folks. In case any of y'all audiophiles are listening. Quick water break. A little bit of water balls. <clears throat> I was just thinking of Bernie Mac in um, Life. You know, great. Again, Martin Lawrence. Come on. Martin Lawrence, a goat. You know, Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence. I love that movie. That movie was great. I heard somebody talking about it recently on a podcast, and they were talking about how it kind of wasn't so much a commercial success, or I, I don't even know any about anything about that. I just thought it was a great movie. And um, I'm the pappy. <laughs> Bernie Mac, I'm the pappy. I'm the pappy. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. <laughs> um, yeah. Sip of water balls. <laughs> yeah. So what I want to talk to y'all about today is, you know, on the theme of, you know, living black in 2020. I recently read a great autobiography and it's connected to the intro of this podcast um 
Maya Angelou. I know why the caged bird sings. Great autobiography. I know why the caged bird sings. By Maya Angelou. Forward by Oprah Winfrey. Coincidentally, gotcha, bitch. <laughs> Dave Chappelle. Oprah, she writes this beautiful um, introduction to this classic uh, landmark book in, I guess you can call it black experience in the United States, you know, Maya Angelou. Um, And in the introduction of this podcast, um, I did a rendition of her poem, Caged Bird. Now, in searching out that poem that I wanted to do for the podcast, a, a recital, I came upon, you know, okay, she also has an autobiography. Her first, you know, she has a series of them, right? As, you know, time goes on, there's more to be said. So, the first in the series of her autobiographies is, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Read it. And man, I can't recommend it enough. I can't recommend it enough as a, uh, as just an enjoying, an enjoyment in reading. It's entertaining. It's insightful. It's wise. It's humorous. It's gut-wrenching, heartbreaking. And it really packs a wallop. It really, it really does. I started off by being, you know, I read the introduction that Oprah wrote, a beautiful foreword that Oprah wrote, how, you know, when she was growing up, she was looking to see herself reflected in the societal narrative. And she wasn't hearing or seeing any of the stories that kind of spoke to her as a young woman. And, you know, she she reads this book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And coincidentally, she has an opportunity as a young journalist to interview, to interview um, Maya Angelou. And they became lifelong friends up until Maya Angelou's death, I believe, in 2014. Unfortunately, she passed away. She lived a long, successful life. And, you know, I read the foreword by Oprah, got into the book, and, you know, at first I was kind of like, all right, this is, you know, it's, it's nicely written, there's a command, there's a flow, you know, that's very, that's very understated about writing. If you have any experience writing, like, I write my jokes, I have some humble writings myself, and... It's so glaring when, well, that's why, that's how people become professional writers. There's a certain flow that sometimes it's just about, you you can just feel it when you're reading it. It just comes through the page. It comes through the words. So, you know, she had a flow definitely. And I was like, okay, this is nice. This is nice. Oh, wow. This is kind of insightful. Oh, wow. This is kind of informative and kind of heartbreaking and oh wow this is kind of humorous oh wow this is kind of edgy and interesting and entertaining and wow like i'm actually now like you know i'm looking forward to like you know every time you'd read a chapter or two the next day you're looking forward to read some more what's the next bit what's the next story what's the next progression in this autobiography and it just drew me in and it it, unf- it unfolded in a way that I truly did not expect because yo I'm a I'm a man in 2020 and I'm a black man and um I believe in accountability and self-reliance and I also believe in an understanding of underlying factors Systemic racism, uh, prejudice. I'm aware of these factors, but I'm also very much in the belief of self-reliance 
community organization, accountability, family. And I was a little skeptical going into it. I'm like, I don't really know. I don't know what to think. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm pretty cynical in my worldview, the belief that people are motivated by self-interest. I'm cynical in my worldview, but I'm like a humanitarian in my heart. So I wasn't really sure what's this book gonna mean to me. It's, it's a part of literary history, black culture history, you know, the English language history, you know, she's a famous writer and a poet. I didn't really know what to expect. And like I said, it just unfolded in a beautiful way. It flowed lovely. It was a celebration of childhood, a celebration of the loss of innocence, a celebration in the overcoming of racial barriers, a celebration in personal accountability and realization, humor, you know, family dynamics, you know. And for me as a man, it was a palatable insight into women's issues. You know, it, I, I had a great respect, respect and interest in her perspective as she told some of her stories coming up as a young woman in, um, uh, Arkansas, I believe she moved around, you know, Arkansas, um, San Francisco, California, and, you know, it just really unfolded in a beautiful way. I have a couple um, quotes, excerpts that I'd like to share with y'all now. Um, This is one is on, uh, I found very, very, very um, insightful. Um... Let me read for you here. This is from I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Little snippet. I find it interesting that the meanest life, the poorest existence, is attributed to God's will. But as human beings become more affluent, as their living standard and style begins to ascend the material scale, God descends the scale of responsibility at a commensurate speed. You know, that was very meaningful to me, you know, because there's not many examples in the book where she speaks her opinion directly to the reader. She's mainly just telling a story, but she never really comments on the story that frequently in the book. And, you know, here she is making this very wise observation about God and human life, you know, like, it's interesting that the more fluent our living standard and style ascends, God descends the scale of responsibility at a commensurate speed, you know, we get away from God once we start becoming full of ourselves and, you know, God being the God of your choosing, folks, um, I personally believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I believe in a creator. You know, um, I see the beauty in his or her design. You know, the human body, for example. Um, the vol- the involuntary, voluntary function, right? We don't volunteer to breathe. Our body just automatically knows how to do that. That's life. That's the spark of life in motion that science can't answer. There's a belief in science. They call it scientism. The belief that everything can be explained by science and anything that can't be explained by science is not worth thinking about. A scientific approach. 
But for all the science and knowledge we as human beings have come up with, which is great and impressive, technology, here I am on camera, on the internet, this is technology, this is a masterpiece of human invention. But for all our science and know-how, how do we explain a heartbeat? How do we explain breath? How do we explain the inner workings of the body that we don't volunteer for? It's involuntary. I'm just breathing, involuntary. You know, my heart is pumping blood through my body. My organs are functioning. That's the spark of life that I don't volunteer, but I am given. That we are given. How do you explain that? And I found that, you know, very insightful in the book, that little quote. You know? There's also this uh, really great passage where um, Maya Angelou, she speaks on her youth. Um, well, the whole book's about her youth. <laughs> it's an autobiography on youth. But um, there's a passage where, you know, she's of a teenage time. She's in her teenage years. And she's applying to be a conductress, conductorette or a motorette, as they call it. She wanted to work on the San Francisco street trolley. And, you know, she wanted to be a coin operator. This is like mid-40s. So she goes down to the office to apply. And um, there's a white receptionist, a white lady. You know, she says, hi, I'm here to apply for the job. I want to be a conductress, conductorette. For, for the San Francisco trolley. And the white lady looks all befuddled, like, um, um, well, our hiring manager is absent at the moment. I don't know if the job is really available anymore. And, uh, I, uh, uh. And Maya's like, well, I'm answering the ad in the paper. You know, there's an ad in the paper that I'm answering. I mean, the job's still available, isn't it? Well, um, I don't know. I'm gonna, well, well, why don't you come back? Okay, sure, I'll come back. Uh, when should I come back? Um, uh, <clears throat> oh, heavens. Um, well, why don't you come back uh, to see the manager at, at this time? Uh, okay, I'll come back later. Thank you. Okay, thank you, miss. And she leaves. And then the passage goes on to, she goes on to say how in that moment, the idea of black and white, racial tension, racial games, she just saw through it all. She felt so sad that as a black woman and as a black, as a black woman and as a white woman, they were both forced into playing this little game that was based on hate, prejudice, disrespect from the people that came before her, the people that came before them that had nothing to do with the present moment. They were both victims of the racial prejudices of, you know... One one color holding down another color. One color resentful of the other color for their past indiscretions and, you know, their, their past transgressions. They were all kind of a victim of the same hypocrisy and petty, ugly, twisted human nature. You know, that was the point she was making. They were both victims. And that insight where it's like, Basically, you can't hate one and love the other, you know? So you, the, the hater and the hated are both victims of the higher hypocrisy, you know? And it's a game that a lot of people are forced into playing, you know? They call it white privilege. And a lot of times it's like a situation that they're forced into. Born into the legacy of whatever. You know? It's an overall ugly thing for both parties. Sorry, I dropped my hanky.
drop my hanky and pick it up. But like, you know, it's that lineage of just, you know, victimhood on both ends. And, you know, even in the 1960s, I believe, is this when this book was first published? Yeah, like, uh, what was this book published? 1969, copyright 1969, you know? In the height of this, in the midst of the civil rights movements, Maya, Maya Angelou had the insight to see that. You know, it's a victimhood on both ends. Past transgressions carried down, hatred carried down. You know? And it benefits both cultures to work together and to celebrate one another. You know? It, you know, there's no, there ain't no answer in hate. You know? If you hate, you can't love. How can you hate one and love the other? You know, if I hate you for your color, your gender, your sexuality, if I hate you for an arbitrary reason like that, then I hate everybody. How can you look somebody in the face and hate them for no reason, then turn around and love your family and love your kids and love your friends? You don't love anybody. You're clouded with hate. If you hate one, you hate them all. And it's an it's a all-encompassing hatred and victimhood that we all have to take our part in, our accountability in, and transcend. And that was like the insight of this book. You know, I know why the caged bird sings. And the 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 adolescent, you know, the, the uncertainty and awkwardness of adolescence. And what a great book. And it was on par for me. It was on par for me with like other writers that have touched me in that way, like Charles Bukowski. Coincidentally, they're both from the uh, California area. You know, uh, I believe they're both from San Francisco at different points of their life. You know, um, I believe Charles Bukowski was raised in San Francisco. I think he was born in Germany, raised in San Francisco. And, you know, Maya Angelou, uh, I forget where she was born, in the South, in Arkansas. But she was raised in Arkansas, raised in California. And I, they have a very similar kind of vibe because they're both poets Charles Bukowski renowned drunk alcoholic you know post office factotum uh barfly uh you know all his poems you know he's very similar in that he wrote poems and then he also wrote autobiographies you know as i mentioned there post office factotum uh, Hollywood, Barfly. These are autobiographies that he wrote, much in the style of Maya Angelou. I know why the caged bird sings, and various others, and her poems. Like, I remember as a young man, as a young man, I had my feelings of rebellion, my feelings of disenfranchisement, my alcoholism. <laughs> um, I had a lot of these things going on, and I really connected with Charles Bukowski. I really felt, I really felt him on like in, in his writing. My favorite being like uh, my two favorite being Post Office and Ham on Rye. You know, Ham on Rye had a very similar feel to um, I know why the caged bird sings. It's that exploration of humanity and just the the beauty in how it unfolded in both cases Charles Bukowski and Maya Angelou and that's what I mean I was I was really taken back because it's like hey when you hear when the soul speaks to you the soul speaks to you it doesn't matter in what color and what language well maybe it matters in language <laughs> If you can't understand what the fuck you're reading, it might be a problem. But 
um, it, the heart, the heart understands what the heart understands. You know what I mean? And, you know, you can be moved, whether it be some German American bar hopping, burnt out alcoholic degenerate like uh, Charles Bukowski, underneath all of which, you know, a shining soul. But you could be this degenerate like Charles Bukowski, or you could be this very insecure, questing black woman like Maya Angelou. And then the heart wants what the heart wants when it's unfolded, when you hear the truth in, in, in their words. So, you know, I definitely recommend to anybody Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Powerful stuff. And, you know, in this time of 2020, living as a black person, you know, it's, it's very much about that for me. You know, what I found in that book was a lot of self-realization, a lot of self, uh, you know, a quest for self realization, self-respect, and accountability. And that's what I see in these times. You know, there's a lot of civil unrest right now, a lot of protests, people fighting back against police brutality, people fighting back against, you know, systemic racism, which are all very real realities, you know? And again, if you hate one, you can't hate, you can't love the other, you know? Like... How can you hate somebody but then love another? That doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, it's about that personal accountability. And, you know, for all communities, specifically though as a black man, as I speak on the black community, yes, yes. There have been many situations in our history of racism, of systemic racism, of prejudice, of disrespect, of horrific injustice. Moving forward today, all the legwork that our ancestors have done, the Harriet Tubmans, the Denzel Washingtons, the Sidney Poitiers, you know, the uh, Booker T. Washingtons, you know, all, all these heroes have taken us to this place of, you know, self-realization, you know, like my man James Brown, self-realization, you know, what we need, soul power. What we need, soul power. You know? Soul brother number one taught me that, you know? And we're in this time right now where it's like, yeah, we've come through a lot. And the groundwork that our four brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers have done, here we are now. We can embrace that. And have accountability, self-accountability, family. That's the way forward. That's the way forward. And to forgive. And to ask for forgiveness. Because when we carry hatred in our heart and we're judging others, we're a part of that same system. And that ultimately leads nowhere leads to uh, destruction. And, um, you know, going forward, post-pandemic, civil, civil, I want to say, I would, uh, I don't want to say, what's the word I want? I want to choose my words. Societal discussion, cultural dialogues moving forward, 
accountability, family, consideration for your fellow human being, connectivity, togetherness, and, you know, living in that benefit, living in all that hard work, in the beautiful possibility of tomorrow. Hallelujah. It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent August 27th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Yeah, Black Experience 2020. A lot to be blessed for. You know, um, together we rise. You know, Black, White, Asian, Hispanic. You know, we all are together. Indigenous, we're all together. European, Europe, we're all together. You know, let's celebrate each other. You know, let's make something, uh, let's make something out of what's left of this planet. You know? I want to break dance and do the shumka. Yo, if uh, you want to follow me, check me out on podcasts. Podcasts on Spotify. My podcast. <laughs> check out my podcast, JR the P, John the Ramp, John the Podcast, the podcast you're listening to. Check me out on uh, Spotify, iTunes. I'm on YouTube. I'm on my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. Alright? And if you're enjoying the show and you're having fun, you know, help my black ass out for crying out loud, you know? We're in a new time, 2020. Help my black ass out, you know? Lend a helping hand. Share me with a friend. Till next time, folks. You live it, you love it, you realize it. Aight? Peace. Ha, 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 ha.